Welcome to the Tao of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I am Laura Hilliger. And I'm Doug Belshaw. Laura, welcome to season two. This podcast, everyone, is currently unfunded, but you can support it and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com forward slash we are open. That's opencollective.com forward slash we are open. Yes, so today I am excited that we are going to talk about frameworks, which um, actually we might rant a little bit. Doug will definitely rant. I might rant. Um, But I think it's really good timing because we are actually recording this podcast the day after I, along with a community of practitioners, uh, published a brand spanking new framework. Uh, So I just feel like the timing's really good. I got my framework hat on, and I guess we're going to... Say stuff well, I them. think we should start with uh, brass tacks, as um, sometimes people say. What are we talking about when we're talking about frameworks? What would like be an example of a framework that people might know? Well, I think um, one that most people know is the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, or at least I think maybe not most people in the world, but most people who might be listening to this podcast. Um, so the the SDGs... I don't know. Do you think that's a framework? I think it's a framework. The 17 yeah, goals. I mean, they're, they're framed as goals, aren't they? But like, yeah. there's something that you can align with. I think that's the main thing. Like, it's a framework. It's a way of organizing. It's a way of, it's a, it's a, it's a tool for thinking. Yeah, it's a tool for organizing. So other frameworks might be, I don't know, like a curriculum might be mm-hmm. a framework or um, like, my my doctoral thesis work was on digital literacy. Like, there's lots of digital literacy frameworks or information literacy frameworks or something. Media which we'll literacy, about. gender literacy, anything literacy, really. Absolutely. I I was doing some stuff the other day, and they were talking about climate literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I can get into the literacy stuff because the way that people outline stuff is is quite interesting. But yeah, that's the kind of stuff that we want to talk about. Um, Frameworks, tools for thinking, organizing thought, biasing towards think, some kind of action. I think the I think the thing I like about the SDGs is that as it's one of the most successful frameworks that I know. And by successful, I mean a lot of people are aligning their work towards those seventeen goals. And I think mm. that you know a framework developed in darkness dies in darkness. I think I might have just plagiarized somebody, the Washington Post. I think you just did, yeah. Jeff Bezos is going to sue you. Mm. Anyway, it's interesting that you talk about darkness, right? So SEGs, great. Most people, I don't think anyone really says that they're terrible or anything like that. Um, But I don't really know how that particular sausage was made. And by that, I mean, I don't know, like, the process behind which they decided on those particular goals. Um, I don't know particularly who was involved. I think that if I dig enough, I'll probably be able to find that out. That's exactly But at the end of the day, say, yeah. the reason why people are willing to align is because it's the UN. Yeah. Know? Yeah. It's a, it's brand, right? Like the mm. brand is helping, helping to make that framework a su- quote unquote successful framework. Mm. Yes. But anyway, I feel like you're itching to tell us about the framework which you've come up with with other people. So why don't you tell us about that, and then we can talk about other ones as well. 
Yeah, I well, I mentioned it at the beginning, the open leadership definition, and I guess I'm in, itching to talk about it because um, I was thinking about what makes an open leader an open leader back when I was at Mozilla, like year six, seven, eight years ago. Uh, you and I were working together. We developed the web literacy map, and like the ne the next intellect intellectual jump for me was. You know, I was the teaching and learning lead. And I was working a lot with adults. I was working with people who were implementing the frameworks that we were coming out with. Um, so they were people who were taking the web literacy map and uh, using it in the classroom, in nonprofits, in learning events. Um, and my next intellectual step way back then was, who are these people who are showing, you know, these open behaviors and practices? What, you know, what sort of aligns them? What do they have in common? Um, and Mozilla continued that work actually. And there, when we developed the open leadership definition, which came out yesterday, um, mm -hmm. we were piggybacking off work I did years ago and off, off that work being continued in the Mozilla community. Um, so the, this culmination is really looking at things that other open source communities have, have said leadership is in open source. Um, so I feel like it's it's sort of a meta analysis, um, which cool. I quite like because it's not it's you know not trying to replace anybody else's. It's trying trying to extend um, and in some cases simplify. And so the open leadership definition is really outlining the the mindsets and the behaviors that distinguish open leaders from other types of leaders. Um, okay. So this came out yeah. yesterday, so I haven't had yes. a chance really to. To go through it yet but even just going to the the page on the open organization website there's two things that i really like about this and they're right at the end so the first of uh, the first of them is a very american thing which is a colophon i don't know anyone in british english who uses that word but it's a thing um and it says at the end this document builds on several openly licensed resources including the red hat multiplier and the open leadership framework from mozilla we are indebted to these projects so Straight away, you can see the influence. You can see like the the genealogy of this particular document. So that's the first thing, like knowing where it's come from. The second thing, which you and I always do, Laura, with clients and and in the projects that we run and the products and stuff, is have a revision history. And this one says version one point updated August two thousand and twenty one. And even at the bottom, it says suggest a revision, which takes you to GitHub. And the importance of doing that is that these things develop over time. And if you can't see a version number of it, then how do you know which version that people are aligning with? And that's really, really important, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, when we were kind of planning this episode and, and we were talking about the, the fact that if you can't go back in time and see where a framework came from, um, mm. then how can you apply it to your own context? And right. I think, I think in the open source community, certainly we're quite good at um, documenting our our path to something, um, and so I, I'm kind of wondering, given that you participate in in the open source community or work openly, and you you trace things back, maybe you want to talk a little bit about the the opposite of that and what happens when a framework is just released into the world and you know that people are expected to somehow care 
Absolutely right. So let's start from, and I put this into a number of presentations, and so maybe I'll link to some of the slides so people can kind of follow this through visually. Um, so one of my favorite tweets of all time was by an account, which I think is now dormant, called EdTech Hulk. And EdTech Hulk would put everything in capitals all of the time. And this particular tweet from literally a decade ago said, um, Hulk think you can put literacy after anything and make people take it more serious. Digital literacy, mobile literacy, Hulk literacy. <laughs> um, and that's true, isn't it? People use the word literacy after pretty much anything. And um, a friend of ours, Greg, sent us this particular one, which is a book called Vegetable Literacy. Like, literally, you can put the word literacy after anything. And the reason that people do that is because when you're using the word literacy, it's really about power. Um, what you're saying is these are the things that you should pay attention to if you want to know about this, according to me. So, for example, before I said climate literacy, well, there's lots of different ways in which you could respond to the climate emergency. But if you say, well, this is being climate literate, you're defining what that means, and therefore you're exerting power in the world. So there's an example which I often give, and this is from the dqinstitute.org. And it's this very pretty kind of looks like a pie chart or a color wheel or something like that. And I've seen it on so many slides and so many documents. And it's like a collection of stuff that when you look at it, you're like, oh, it kind of goes together, yeah. But when you kind of look at it a bit more, you're like, why is that in, why is empathy in with digital footprints? Like it's just a collection of words. So when you look at that a bit more closely and you kind of think, well, if this wasn't pretty, if this was kind of just black and white and gray and stuff, would I like it as much? Would it, would it appeal to me so much? And I think the reason being is because we're just seeing the finished product here. We're seeing something which looks like, you know, Brian Mathers from our co-op talks about cognitive ease. It looks like it fits into our life or our brain really nicely and easily. But if you imagine this being a bit like a, an artist's studio and, and they're giving you the finished bit of work, you kind of need to go into the artist's studio and to see what materials that he or she has been painting with so like what what materials have they used who was involved in painting it what decisions did they make when they were painting it what did they reject what did they leave out all this kind of stuff and that's the things that get left out you know um mm -hmm. and i feel like when we dig into the stuff that we've done we've documented this openly like with the web literacy map with the open organization definitely like all of this stuff you can look through the minutes of things and you can see what's being left out. Can you think of an example of a framework that is widely used that is just like a, you know, a black door to us? We don't really know where it comes from, but everybody uses it. Well, this one, like, um, so this one, um, pretty much any curriculum, which is used mm -hmm. on a, on a national basis, um, those conversations happen behind locked doors. I'll give you a perfect example. I used to be a history teacher. Um, and the 10 years ago, when the Conservative government came in, they changed the history curriculum. And people were questioning, like, who was involved? Because some names were kind of mentioned. But when they were interviewed, they said they didn't have that much input. And it turns out that the, the education minister, who had a penchant for history, actually wrote most of the history curriculum himself. <laughs> 
But nobody found that out until later because it was behind locked doors. Yeah. So, well, what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is working openly. And I used to use a metaphor. If you right-click on most web pages, you can view source. And you can see the HTML, CSS, JavaScript, etc., which makes up that web page. And most people won't do that, but it's kind of important that we can. It's important that we can see what a page is made up of so that you can learn and also so you can see if there's anything kind of malicious. And that's the way that I learned HTML. And it's a way mm -hmm. that lots of people learned HTML as well. So if you think about it, if you're taking a framework, if you're taking something which other people have made or even something which you've had a part in, and you want to take that kind of quite abstract thing and you want to apply it to your context, everyone's context is different. So, you know, the context that I know best are kind of um, uh, like nonprofits, formal education institution, charities, those kinds of things. They are all very different kinds of organization. And even within the same context, you know, when I was working in higher education, different universities would be more different between themselves than like a university and not in a for-profit business. Um, so you can't just take the framework off the shelf because it looks pretty. Sorry, this is turning into a rant. It's totally just, a rant. I'm just letting you go on and on and on. You been, take, you, you're totally, I, I mean, I'm I, going for it. You can't just, just take okay. a framework off the shelf, right? And do no work and apply it and expect yeah. good things to happen. Like you have to do, the work of contextualizing the framework. And if you know how that particular sausage was made, how that painting was painted, it makes it easier for you to be able to contextualize it because you can see that it was designed by people like you for situations like this. So or, I think that I'm just going to interrupt you right now because you have been ranting for a good 12 minutes straight. So I'm just going to, and I almost had a transition point right there where I could actually say something. So I'm just going to do it. Uh, I forgot what it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but uh, this idea of contextualizing. So I wanted to make a little bit of a leap from frameworks into um, like, the way that you work with digital tech agencies or the way mm -hmm. that nonprofits and others uh, work with digital tech agencies, one of the things that I've noticed in our work is that often people come into the nonprofit space um, or into spaces where we're working um, and they have a framework that they're going to apply to nonprofits. So techie people coming in and saying, oh, I know exactly what you, you need. You're a nonprofit and I have this tech framework or I have this technical standard, or I have this digital strategy, and I've done it before, so it'll definitely work for you. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't find anything more annoying than people, like especially you know tech-savvy digital agencies that are giving advice around digital transformation that come in and try to apply something, uh, a framework or a piece of software or whatever, uh, in the nonprofit space without having the proper context of not only that particular nonprofit, but also this, the, the topic that that nonprofit is dealing with. And what I'm saying here is I don't think you should be walking into a climate nonprofit and trying to apply a framework that you happen to use for a, I don't know, a poverty nonprofit or something like that, right? Uh, and you see it all the time, especially coming out of tech tech people think, oh, I've seen this work before, so let me just um, apply it without even thinking about the context. And I think it's the same problem um, that, that happens with a lot of frameworks happens in the tech space. 
there. There's I different talked for two minutes. of frameworks, though, right? And I think what you're right. talking about there is very specific frameworks, like almost, almost a template. Like mm -hmm. I'm cookie cutter kind of, oh, I've seen this before, like you say, I'm just going to apply it without even thinking about it. And there are different ways of doing that. There are frameworks which we use, I would say, um, which we don't call frameworks. Like there's one which we call an architecture of participation, which is a framework, but it's more of a invitation to think about, to co-create a framework based on an architecture. So it's it's a bit like some of the work that I did with my thesis, which we'll talk about in a minute, where you could call it like an unframework. It's mm -hmm. a it's a tool to get people to come up with their own frameworks. Yep. Absolutely. And every time that we've used the architecture of participation, we've it's been, you know, the outputs have been completely different because it is unframework. It's not a it's not a kind of fill in the blank uh yeah, it's it has to be applied contextually, otherwise it's completely pointless. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So shall we go through what those things are? Because people might be thinking, okay, well, what is that? Um, the, the URL for this, should you be interested, is weareopen.coop forward slash AOP. Um, for architecture participation, correct? Indeed. Yes. So the eight things. We actually call it a framework. On we do call this it a page. framework. But we maybe call it we a should... framework on this page. Maybe we should call it an unframework on this page. And we mm. should basically make a note to edit this. Mm. A friend of ours um, said on Sunday night that he went uncamping. So maybe <laughs> adding Is that like glamping? Stuff. No, Is it uncamping was... glamping? No, it was getting rid of all of the annoying things from camping, like, you know, people Mosquitoes. drinking loads of beer and making loads of noise and not you not being able to get to sleep. Um, to me, it just sounds like camping. But I think sometimes okay. when you put the word un in front, it's like trying to get back to basics in some way. So maybe it's that. Um, I, so I, just, I still things? can't really imagine what uncamping is. So uncamping is camping without beer? Yeah, that doesn't sound awesome, does it? That, Maybe, well, it doesn't really sound like un uncamping, as far well, as I can tell. Uncamping would be heck? staying at home, wouldn't it? Or like in a hotel in the wild, mm. you know, like those treehouse hotels. Mm. I don't. I mean, I've only ever seen un one treehouse hotel. Uncamping would be not using but... a tent. Uncamping yes. would be lying naked in front of the stars. Which I don't think is something I want to do. I don't really think that's a really good idea because everywhere you go, at least, I, I don't know. I feel like every time I've ever been camping, then there's been a lot of mosquitoes. But hmm. it might just be because anyway, I always... Anyway, oh, What are we doing? <laughs> right, we're talking about frameworks. Let's talk about camping frameworks. No, that's not. Okay. So the <laughs> I'll do the first four. The, from the architecture of participation, um, the first four that we've kind of identified, and this came from, you know... Tim O'Reilly saying some stuff about um, Larry Lessig's book, Code and the Laws of Cyberspace. So the things we've identified from that, the people need, we're not saying what these things are, we're saying that you need something like this. So number one, you need a clear mission. You need a big idea that people can rally around. Secondly, you need to invite people to participate, not just say it's open to everyone, but invite specific people. Who are you going to invite? Thirdly, you need to be able to onboard people easily. What's that going to look like in your particular context? Um, and then fourth, you need a modular approach. Um, and that means that people, if they're volunteering, for example, 
don't just have to say that they're signing up to everything and basically signing their life over to your project, but they can get involved in little bits of it and it all kind of works together. Yeah, and then there's four other elements. And if you go to the, the webpage, then you'll see a very pretty graphic that uh, summarizes all of this. Um, the, the fifth one is strong leadership, um, which ties back to the open leadership definition. If you're wondering about the, the mindsets and the behaviors, what we mean by strong leadership, we, there's a secondary framework that is um, quite complex. Well, complex. It's simple and complex. Um, you can have a look at that. Um, but basically, you know, you you need people who embody the mission, who respect the volunteers, who, um, you know, can carry forward the project uh, in, a, in a way that makes it successful. Um, you need ways of working openly and transparency. So we've talked about this all the time on this podcast, but basically trying to figure out where on the continuum of open that your particular project falls. Um, so openness is not a binary, it is a continuum. Uh, some projects can be more open than others, um, but actually being able to document where are the secret areas of a particular project, is everything out in the open, um, how, how are you being transparent and how are you, um, you know, being adaptable to the context of the project. Um, you need back channels and water coolers. Everybody needs a little bit of a social space. Um, so no matter what the project is, People need to be able to interact with each other because um, it's, you know, a sense of community is the thing that's going to help a project move itself forward. People need to belong. Um, and then the final, the final one is celebration of milestones. Um, it's really important to recognize the, contribute, the contributors and the contributions of people who are working together on a project. Cool. So what what the what the the point of doing this is to have well, are we going to use unframework? It's a, it's an architecture, isn't it? It's a it's a way. It's an invitation to come up with your own framework. Um, and interestingly, this this work that we've done over the last kind of decade, where we're trying to get people to to think and to come up with their own frameworks, has happened in parallel with the work that we've done around, for example, open badges. And you can think about them running in parallel. So one is you need to come up with your own frameworks so they fit in your context. And the second one is you need to come up with your own credentials or recognition so that you are giving people ways in which they can represent themselves at a distance to other people. And those two things go together. And what I find really interesting is that there's certain people who don't want to do that. Um, like they are very resistant to it. And if you run workshops, they like literally just want to take things and be told what to do. And I find that a little bit sad. Um, and it's particularly happened with the work that I've done around the eight essential elements of digital literacy, as I call them. So you mentioned before, Laura, that the open leadership definition is kind of a meta definition or a meta framework or whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um that's when I did my doctoral thesis, I kind of accidentally did it. I stumbled into it um, and I ended up doing this kind of meta-analysis of all these different digital literacy frameworks and approaches and definitions. And this was like a decade ago, so it definitely needs updating. But um, at dougbellshow.com forward slash thesis, it's got a TEDx talk that I did. It's got the book that I wrote of for my thesis and the thesis itself. Um, but there's an image which I think is more useful and the image is this one, which I'm just going to make sure is in the show notes. So someone kind of remixed it 
um, a guy which who on, on Twitter was Mr. Ted P. And I think he worked in like a private school in America. Um, and he took these eight elements of digital literacies and kind of put them into four skill sets and four mindsets. And the skill sets were um, cultural, creative, constructive, and communicative. So um, thinking about, well, in order to be digitally literate or to exhibit qualities of, of digital literacies, well, these are the skills that you're going to need to be able to, to do. You're going to need to understand how to work within a particular culture. And that doesn't have to be high culture, like opera and all that kind of stuff. It can literally be how to share cat memes that are funny. Yeah, that's a culture. Being creative, well, we all know what that means, um, but it means different things in slightly different contexts. Being constructive, like building stuff rather than just um, consuming things. Communicating, there's different rhetorics of communication in different spaces. It kind of fits with the cultural definition. But then there's these four mindsets as well. There's um, confidence in a digital realm. Even just being able to press Control Z to undo something blows people's minds when they learn it for, for the first time. Cognitive, like what it means to reflect on you being a digital avatar or reflecting on the tools that you use in a digital space. Um, same with kind of the critical element. So thinking about why you'd use one tool or one approach rather than another. And then the civic dimension, which ironically, 10 years ago when I first came up with this, was the most contentious of all of these. Why would you have a civic definition of digital literacies? And I think we've seen over the last 10 years, Brexit, Trump, um, all the stuff that's happened on Wikipedia, I think we've seen why. I think we've seen why that's important. Mm. So mindsets and skill sets, but instead of saying like, this is exactly what you should do, which is what people kind of want sometimes, this was an invitation to come up with your own framework based on these elements, like chemical elements. Um, and it's been interesting to see the reception of that um, and kind of the stuff that you talked about with the architecture of participation as well, and to some degree, the web literacy map um, over time. Yes, I also did a meta-analysis. That's actually how I know you, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because I found your doctoral thesis when I was writing my thesis uh, a long time ago, years ago. Um, and one of the things that you had written, yes, I read your entire thesis. It was very long, just yes, FYI. Yes, you and my mother have read that. Thank you, Laura. Yeah, you're welcome. We're the only ones, right? And you made a book out of it, though, right? Don't you have an e-book? I did. And to be fair, it was a wiki at one point, and almost a million people, or a million, a million views of that wiki, which is a lot. Well, one of the things that you said was uh, somewhere in your thesis, you were talking about all of the literacies, information literacy, digital literacy, technological literacy, computer literacy, media literacy, communication literacy, internet literacy, and other ambiguous terms. Uh, ambiguity also comes out quite a bit in your thesis. Um, and one of the things that you said is that these terms, quote, do not have the necessary exploratory power or they become stuck in a potentially endless cycle of umbrella terms and micro literacies, yeah. um, which I, yes, which is in my thesis. Uh. I quoted you <laughs> in my thesis. That's what I'm reading from. It's also on my website. Um, but let, let me just explain what I meant by umbrella terms. Um, people, instead of saying that this is a brick in the wall of a wider picture, they want their thing to be the entire wall, if that metaphor makes sense. Mm -hmm. So they they want their thing to be like the one thing to rule them all, a bit like Lord of the Rings, like the one ring to rule mm -hmm. them all. 
um, like their definition is going to be the one that's going to fit for all time. And that's where I started when I was doing my my work, then realized that actually people need to come up with their own definitions um, and kind of apply to their own situation. And I guess yes, exactly. that work and, and went into the web literacy map as well. Exactly. And that's exactly where I was going to go with this is, is it wasn't just, it wasn't just your thesis that I was looking at back then uh, before the web literacy map was started, um, you know, we started at Mozilla. I was working at Mozilla at the time. I was also working on my master's in media and education. And I started to look at literacy through the lens of what does it actually mean when it's applied to the context of the web. Um, and your eight essential elements was only one of the various things that I looked at. I also looked at um, like scratch computational thinking characteristics. I looked at common sense media strands. Mm. Um, I looked at uh, computational thinking characteristics from Jeanette Wing uh, and a couple of other frameworks and then did a a meta-analysis. And I learned exactly the same thing doing my master's um, around literacies and digital literacies in particular, that when regardless of what space you try to apply them to, you're going to have to take into account the context of that particular space. So we are not just talking about web literacy, um, you know, with without a context. Like at that time, we were in the open source community. Uh, we were in the ed tech community or still are in both of those communities. And the context is uh, different from what it might be to say a media educator who is working in the public school system in Germany. Web literacy to them might be slightly different because Germany has some problems with their computers in mm. school rooms. Well, the, the thing which I find really interesting about all of these, these frameworks or approaches is that for me, what you're aiming at when you come up with anything like this, the web literacy map, the eight elements, the open organization definition, whatever it is, is you're trying to make it specific enough that it can do work. Like you can, you can say, okay, I can now do something as a result of reading that or understanding it, but it can't be so specific that it doesn't have any wiggle room. Yeah, it, like you have to be able to to apply it as well. Yeah. Um, and I haven't really talked, I don't think, apart from over beers at a bar, um, about the work that happened on web literacy after you and I left Mozilla. Mm. I'm not a fan, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> and that it's not just me with sour grapes or whatever. I'm very happy that that work continued. Um, but it seemed to be then, like, I know for a fact, some of it was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, and ended up with these 21st century skills. And it seems to have taken quite a sharp left turn towards kind of libraries and, and mm-hmm. that particular information literacy kind of stuff. And it where it's probably more useful and more specifically useful for libraries now and information literacy professionals, I think it's probably less useful for everyone else. Yeah, so I, I think they really did um, sort of focus on the the glam area, galleries, mm. libraries, archives, and museums, mm. if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you just said something about the practicality of a framework and whether or not it's like practically important, yeah. like you can actually use it. Um, and that's actually why I wanted to have the conversation today and why I keep bringing up the open leadership definition and stuff, because I feel like... I mean, okay, I'm biased because I put a lot of thought and energy and did a lot of the, you know, the community corralling around that definition. Um, so I'm obviously biased, but I feel like 
it's quite practical to be able to see what are the specific behaviors that a quote unquote open leader has listed as bullet points. Um, and it's, you know, it's really easy stuff that we talk about all the time, like, you know, listening and giving critical feedback and mm. these kind of. But do you, do you feel like, so one of the things I've, I spoke about earlier was that when you're coming up with the definition, you are exerting power or you're trying to claim power. Do you feel that with the, with open, with like the open source.com community do you feel that kind of yeah i de well i definitely do because i think that the open org project has quite a high profile because it's it's not financially supported by red hat but uh you know red hat is one of the biggest for-profit open source companies in the world um and you know it is like the open org project which is community driven not funded by red hat but we are supported by the open source program office which essentially means that we have people that check in on us to, you know, see how we're doing and they're paid by Red Hat, right? And so there, there is, you know, there is some, some power around the, like the cultural implementation of open source or the behaviors of open source. However, because I am like a part of that community, I know how much work the community does and they are not funded by Red Hat, right? So it's like, yes, there is, you know, there's some tricky power around because it looks good for red hat right to support right, a community well, on, of intellectuals on, um so yeah money money can be power as well but i i guess i meant in terms of the claiming that this is the definition of an open organization like do you do you was were there any discussions because i i can't remember those kinds of discussions when we were developing the web literacy map I can't remember the kinds of discussions about, or maybe there were, like about who was representing the community and what kind of power relations there were and that kind of stuff. Have mm -hmm. there, so it's too long ago for me to remember, have there been those kinds of conversations within the open organization community as well? Yes, definitely. And you can actually see examples of this on our GitHub where there are, you know, issues filed against the open leadership definition that say things like we need to make this accessible for, for outside of this kind of wildly um, contextual audience of open source intellectuals. Um, mm. Because the conversation and the community that did develop the open leadership definition, all open source experts all uh, people who have been working in this field for a really long time and people who are able to have this conversation quite far removed from people who are not experts in open source, right? So how do you apply open leadership mindsets or behaviors if you can't understand the terminology being used in defining what those things are? Um, and this is, this is work that, that we still have to do. We have to take a look at the, you know, at the definitions that we've created and think about, if you were, you know, if you were somebody coming from a completely different um, industry or a completely different, you know, educational background, would would these still be accessible to you? Are they written mm -hmm. in a way that is like, you know, a bit removed from the academic um, intellectual conversation? Because if you want to be able to implement open leadership in your, I don't know, your mechanic shop then you should be able to do that if that's, you know, what you want to do. But if the document that should help you do that is completely inaccessible from its language, then, you know, it's not really, it's, yeah, it's just not accessible. Okay. So I think the, um, I think the conversations are there, but I think it's, um, you know, it's quite tricky, especially in open source communities that are, you know, maybe 
completely run by contributors and volunteers, this kind of work takes time and is difficult because it's, you know, it's people's like passion project, side project kind of thing. Right. So who has, you know, who has time to think, think around all of the possible contexts that this could be used in and making sure that the document or the framework is accessible for all of those different contexts. Right. Right. So it's it's not just accessibility in terms of we as a group of people have thought about the accessibility and thrown it over the fence for the people, but inviting those in the architectural participation and stuff. Yeah. Um, We should probably wrap this up because I know this one went really nerdy. I know. I know. The last podcast that I did started as a half an hour podcast and end up as a two hour podcast per episode. Mm -hmm. So, and I listened to one by Dan Carlin from Hardcore History, and they're like four hours per episode. So let's not go there, and yeah. let's let's wrap this up. Um, now, what, what would you say would be, for, for you, from your point of view, the main takeaways for people from this episode? If, they, if they've kind of fallen asleep in the middle um, <laughs> and they've just woken back up, like what, what are the main takeaways from your point of view, Laura, from this episode? Uh, I think number one, that frameworks can be useful if they are put into context uh, and that you can't just pick a framework up off the shelf and then, you know, throw it at whatever problem you're dealing with. Rather, you need to think, uh, you know, think about how it needs to be applied and the people involved in the community that um, you're trying to help with this framework. I think that's number one, two, and three. (laughs) I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, when I do my ranty talk about this stuff, um, I talk about kind of people needing to talk to each other about their context. Because I think we assume that just because we're, I don't know, share the same physical space with someone and or do the same job as someone or work in the same organization, that we automatically have the same way of thinking about our context. And I don't think that's true. So we need to talk about our context a lot. And sometimes these kind of unframeworks that we've talked about, architecture, participation, essential elements, um, open org definition, that kind of stuff can help with that. The other thing to remember, and I don't think we've spoken about this, is that people love case studies, right? And the reason that they love case studies is that it gives them an excuse to go to their boss to say, look, this other organization, this industry did this thing and it all turned out really well. So let's do that. But all case studies are marketing. So we need to make sure that we're not just thinking that this organization or this group of people are exactly the same as us, because they're not. Um, Before we finish off, I do want to remind people that we are currently unfunded and that um, if they go to opencollective.com and uh, opencollective.com forward slash we are open, that you can support this. And any amount would be very much appreciated because you don't get a lot of feedback on podcasts. You get the occasional Mm. kind of tweet, but one way in which you can kind of show that you want this to continue is to give us a dollar, a dollar a month, a dollar ever would be fantastic. Um, Not because we're greedy, but because we want that energy from you to keep this podcast going. Yeah. I, I, that's the one thing about the podcast that I find really hard is that you don't really hear whether or not people have enjoyed the conversation every once in a while you get a little something. Mm. Um, but I would, I would love to hear from all of our listeners about what they think about frameworks or what their favorite framework is or 
if they're disappointed that we didn't mention a particular framework, like, yeah, would love yeah. to hear what they, what well, those are. Season two will also be six episodes long. It's like the mm-hmm. first season and um, we have some guests. So every other episode we're aiming to have a guest and we're not going to tell you who those are yet. It's going to be a surprise, but we've got them lined up. And so the next episode should have a guest and you'll find out who that is when we release episode two. Cheers for now. Okay, bye.